I am thrilled to announce that Enactor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, we have a very special episode with returning guest Lauren Bouzereau. We're here to talk about the Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection and 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray with the digital code from Universal Pictures Home Entertainment. This collection includes, for the very first time, the original unreleased version of Psycho. We dig into all things Hitchcock through his four monumental films... Vertigo, Psycho, The Birds, and Rear Window. I'm so excited and I am so grateful to Lauren and Universal for this opportunity. Here it is. Lauren, welcome back to An Actor Despairs, brother. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so, I'm so happy to be back so quickly. I know, man. You're one of my... Right? I, I can't tell you how many people messaged me or reached out to me after... And they were such big fans of your work and your energy. And I, I, I think we all just connected to your, your vast knowledge and your experience with this craft and how much you care for it. Because, you know, there are people that have a penchant and, you know, have hobbies, but you have such passion for this craft. And it shows in all your work and Five Came Back and everything that I've seen. But today, we're here to talk about something very different. We're here to talk about the the anniversary of Hitchcock coming back out on 4K, Ultra, Blu-ray, DVD, HD, digital code, all the above. Come back, baby. <laughs> yeah. From Universal I, Pictures. I, I, I think I think uh, Universal Home Entertainment, who, you, you, you know, uh, um, really deliver. And, and they're one of the few studios that really love their heritage and and uh, and the legacy um, left by the great directors like Hitchcock. So I, I applaud them. And they were the first ones to hire me to do documentaries ever, almost 30 years ago. So um, a big nod to Universal. <laughs> yes, thank you. you know, Universal Studios, I have taken your studio tour 4,000 times. I've been past the Bates Motel and the Bates House recreation. I have so much love for the Universal backlot, but I uh, 
Before we dig into to Hitchcock, Lauren, let's just give like a brief summary. So Lauren has been on the show before. You're an incredible filmmaker, but you've also done a lot of documentaries for Spielberg and the making of projects. Um, how would you like to encapsulate that for those, you know, maybe discovering you for the first time in this episode? Well, you, you know, I would say that uh, I, I've had a long history in the film business. You know, I've always loved uh, movies and and when I discovered that I wanted to direct and I wanted to to be in the film business, I always felt and I was growing up in France. You know, I felt I need to really know the craft and I need to know the history and I need to go back to uh, and visit with all the directors, all the grand movies that that really started uh, um, this industry, this business. Yeah. Um, and and so I, I I held many jobs in the film industry prior to doing documentary filmmaking, but um, and also as a writer. Um, and uh, almost thirty years ago, when the home entertainment uh, uh, life of a project really started to blossom with laser discs uh, um, that were allowing filmmakers to revisit their films and do director's cuts and, and perhaps include archival material. Um, I was contacted uh, by Universal to jump on board a, a special edition of Steven Spielberg's 1941. It was a new cut and they wanted a documentary. And um, they knew of my passion for the film through mutual friends and um, asked me to jump on board. And that was what I thought was going to be a one-off became my career. Basically uh, first with Steven uh, documenting his older movies after 1941, I did Jaws and then ET and so on. And, uh, um, and then, you know, branching out to other filmmakers whether it be Mario Scorsese, Taxi Driver, and Raging Bull, and Brian De Palma's Carrie, and Dressed to Kill, and Scarface, again for Universal. But then, you know, Universal uh, um, was very interested in in revisiting their library. And um, I said to them, I remember that conversation, I said, you know, uh, uh, everyone from Psycho is 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 dying. I think we had just lost Robert Block, who was the author of the book of Psycho, and and I knew him personally. You did. Um, is it true? Is it true that Hitchcock tried to purchase every copy of the book so nobody could spoil the ending? <laughs> Uh, I think uh, uh, that that cannot be true. Okay. <laughs> I did hear that somewhere. <laughs> you know, there's so much, uh, so many uh, uh, crazy stories around um, any iconic films and any iconic directors, but it's a good, and, and he is one of those directors who really believed in a self-promotion mm-hmm. and, um he had a camo appearance in all of his movies. So people knew who he was, um, unlike any other directors of his, of his generation. Uh, uh, um, I'm sure there, there's got to be somebody else, but he would be recognized on the street. Yeah. And this is before Instagram, right? Yeah. So, so, so uh, I have to, to, to give him like a big, you know, uh, a salute for, for understanding 
the importance of of promoting um, a film and promoting the person responsible for telling the story, and that is the director. And he did that through his cameo appearances, and he did that in appearing in his trailers uh, eventually, and uh, even recording, you know, uh, albums like Music to be Murdered by and his famous Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, series, also at Universal. Um, and Bernard Herrmann, the greatest, I think, in my opinion, scorn you know, of all time between Vertigo, Psycho. I mean, just, I don't, I don't know if you know of Sleep No More in New York City, but they, you know how in Vertigo there's the McKittrick Hotel? Yes. Hey, have you heard of Sleep No More? No. So Sleep No More basically kind of re-envisioned Hitchcock's uh, thing for a modern audience. And in Vertigo, you know how she stays at the McKittrick Hotel. They built a fictitious McKittrick Hotel where you check in and you have to wear a mask. And it's the story of Macbeth through the McKittrick Hotel, which is like a 10,000 square foot warehouse. And it's all done with this score of Bernard Herrmann playing as you're wandering around voyeuristically. Wow. And, and only the performers are not wearing masks. So to this day, yeah, yeah. We'll have to go in New York sometime. Oh, my God. No, that sounds amazing. Uh, um, but, you know, getting back to to this discussion I had as I was starting to do a lot of documentaries for Universal, I said, you know, we're losing everyone from from those classics. Why don't we try to contact Janet Lee and Pat Hitchcock and Joe Stefano, who wrote the script for Psycho, and, and Hilton Green, who was, you know, associate producer and had been a collaborator of Hitchcock. Um, his assistant, Peggy Robertson, who was very instrumental, was the first one to actually read a review of Psycho in the New York Times and, and said to Hitchcock, you know, I think this could be really interesting. Uh, um, she was at the motion picture home, uh, um, uh, at the motion picture home and uh, um, Universal was totally on board. And, and there I was doing this documentary retrospective on, 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 on Psycho. The, the funny story goes that uh, I went to meet Janet Lee to, um, to interview her and I went to her home and Janet Lee was an amazing, so warm, so kind person. And she loved animals and she loved her big, her big dog and may have been a Labrador, but a big dog. Yeah. And she, she, she said to me, I have to have my dog with me during the interview. And, and I said, okay, as long as the dog doesn't make too much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, we start talking, we start filming, and, and of course we have a boom mic, and she has a mic uh, on her as well, and and um, we start talking about the opening scene, Psycho, which is of course that famous, you know, very sensual scene. She's only in her bra and slip, and 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 there is John Gavin, her her lover, uh, you know, bare chest, essentially a sex scene, a love scene, and the dog is panting. And and I said, Janet, we have to stop because here you are talking about the scene, and all I'm hearing is. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, I I just I just think, you know, you you know, as much as I love dogs as well, we're gonna have to to to, to have the dog in another room and and maybe bring him back for a photo later yeah. on. Um, but you, you know it. It's been so amazing to be asked to 
participate in this uh, launch of of this 4K collection because I decided to rewatch the movies one by one and to try to look for things I had never noticed before. Mm-hmm. And and that goes to the point of how new generations today who have no idea who Hitchcock is, maybe or what Psycho or The Birds, Rear Window or Vertigo uh, uh, means, they feel extremely contemporary. Those movies are so brilliantly paced yeah. and, and written and acted. And I, I mean, I cannot find any flaws in those films. Um, and, and anyone who loves a great story, because ultimately that's what Hitchcock is. He was a master of suspense, but yeah. he was a great storyteller and his worlds are so unique. There's so much to discover that um, even if you know the outcome of Psycho, let's say, it doesn't matter. You, no. you pick up on clues. You pick up on on things that are that are there that are fascinating. And, and I have to say, I discovered a whole new world in preparation for my discussions with you of things I never really noticed before. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. I never noticed that. And and it's so exciting, you know, to think that this movie was made in, you know, came out in 1960 and, and still feels like a film that could be released today and be just equally as successful and as exciting. Um, and I don't think that, Many films of that of of that generation have that kind of power. For most of the movies of of yesteryear, as you know, uh, made in the forties, fifties, whatever, you know, uh, you you kind of have to make an effort and put yourself back into that frame of mind to appreciate them. I think with Hitchcock, you can do that, but you can also not do that. And, and have an equally amazing experience. Yeah. Um, and and, and it's, it's exciting. It's thrilling. It's, uh, uh, I, I, I just cannot get enough of his work. You, you know, it happens once in a while that you get down with the business. You know, it's a tough business to, to, to yeah. work and live in. Um, the films you see that come out are not always the – the kind of movies that you grew up wanting to see and, totally. and the, the kind of movies that, that you wish uh, were being made today. And, and I only have to go back to a Hitchcock movie or to a, a De Palma film or to a Spielberg film to, to pump me back up. But it's definitely, you know, uh, Hitchcock is in the lead with, with Steven and, and, and De Palma, you know, to, to always remind myself, oh, that's, that's why I love movies. You know, that's yeah. that's that. No, I think it's imperative to recognize that. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, that are, I don't, I don't mean to sound belittling when I say that, you know, I don't know who's listening, but I think the landscape, if we could paint the landscape, you know, uh, what, which film would you like to dig into first? Because these are four films that are being released on the Universal uh, 4K. We got Vertigo, Rear Window, The Birds, and Psycho. Well, I would say, you know, like my, my favorite favorite is The Birds of that bunch. And so my second... Talk- 
and my second favorite is 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 Psycho, but the one where I had on this viewing where I had the biggest epiphany because that was the one I had the most problem with always is Vertigo, and I made a discovery that that I I. I found a brand new appreciation for the film. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in my, in, in my discovery, I can talk about it. But Please tell me. Yes. It's well, amazing. you know, Vertigo is an interesting film because, first of all, it's based on, on, on a French novel. As a sidebar, I became really good friend. I became pen pal with one of the authors. It was um, uh, Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narsajac were their names, and they were... Uh, a, a team of writers. Uh, they wrote Diabolique, if anybody knows that. That's yeah, another yeah. classic film. Uh, um, Eyes Without a Face. I mean, amazing, amazing uh, writers. Very famous in France. And and in in the 90s, I started a correspondence with Narsa Jacques, who well, had been dead. And all we talked about was Hitchcock and Vertigo and and uh, um, looking for projects to do together. It, 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 was, it was just really an amazing... To, to direct together to, or to... To, to, to um, either produce or direct or, you, you know. And I actually got really close with a project at Universal and Joe Dante. So it was a very exciting time for me and all stemmed from, from Vertigo. But if I had to, to be completely honest, Vertigo was always a movie I admired, but it was never the movie that I would um, say was my favorite of Hitchcock's because I think um, it lives sort of outside the way that um, the other films he did sort of lived in. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that it really defies logic in many ways. And it, it is almost like a, a, a dream of some kind of, but it, it, it is not, and it doesn't have the humor that um, a lot of his films have. Yeah. Uh, um, and um, I, I always was puzzled by Vertigo. I was like, you know, I really love it, but I, but there's something that's bothering me. So when I rewatched the movie, could could you explain maybe what you thought it was? Was it the lack of yeah, comedy? So the, 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 it was the first sequence where it's the big problem I had was the first sequence in the film where Jimmy Stewart is on the rooftops mm-hmm. um, of of San Francisco pursuing a villain. Yeah, and you have that amazing soundtrack by Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, and and he slips and he's holding on to the gutter of a building, and um, his fellow cop tries to help him, but because Jimmy Stewart has vertigo, he's unable to grab onto him and he causes the cop to fall. Yeah. And you stay on, or Hitchcock stays on a close-up of of Jimmy Stewart holding onto the gutter, fades to black, and then we go to another scene where he is with uh, Barbara Belgettis, who is a former girlfriend of his, and they start talking and you never find out how the hell did he get off the gun? Yeah, it kind of doesn't really explain the gap between that to that. You know, usually it would be interior FBI station. You know, it's it, it is a little I know what you're saying there. And, and I'm yeah. like, he really has vertigo and the bad guy is is ahead of him. And the cop was going to help him 
is dead down below. Yeah. I, I have no idea how he survived this because it, it looks really dangerous. And then there was another moment. So then you go on with the story. He falls in love with this woman who he thinks is possessed by the yeah. spirit of, 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 of a, a relative of hers and that she commits suicide. He feels guilty. And then a few months go by and he just happens to be walking on the street and there is a woman who reminds him of this previous uh, 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 um, woman. Yeah. And it's played by the same actress, Kim Novak. And it turns yeah. out it's actually the same person and that there was a plot against him. And I'm like, that that's too much of a coincidence. Yeah. Too much of a coincidence. So I could never reconcile myself with the logic of that. And it always took away from... Uh, uh, enjoying the film uh, fully until the other night where okay. I watched it again and I figured it out that basically Vertigo is a complete ghost story where Jimmy Stewart, when Hitchcock stops on him, fades to black on him, holding onto the gutter, he actually dies. He lets go and he dies. And the rest of the movie is him in some kind of purgatory where he experiences this dreamlike, completely illogical story in order to overcome his fear and his guilt of his partner falling. And until he does that, he will not go to heaven. heaven. He will be a ghost. And with that in mind, I'm like, movie makes complete sense. Yeah, movie under that conceptual lens, it does seem a lot more logical. And that's so interesting that you discovered that because I never really would have thought of it. seems so obvious once you say that now to look at it from that angle, you know. But I, yeah, I, and, and, yeah. And actually, you know, the last shot of the film, you know, uh, the last shot of the film brings, brings him full circle. He's overcome and he, he's in a religious place in a church and there is a nun who symbolizes religion and god i heard voices i mean i'm getting goosebumps because it's it's the only explanation and the only uh uh way for me to access this film in, in a way where i can actually say it it holds the road you know it yeah and you experience catharsis in that way for the character yeah yeah. And so that's my brand new hot from the press. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Evaluation of Vertigo. And I know that your listeners right now are saying this guy is crazy. <laughs> no, I I'm I'm curious, you know, because obviously I know on this on this bonus on all of this re-release, there's got a lot of behind the scenes making features. Right. How much of, of forthcoming is Hitchcock about the interpretations of what everything means in your experience and all the you know, interviews you've done with the actors that were still alive that you got to interview, you know, about exactly what he had in mind, because there are a lot of different artists that like, I, I, I think art is so beautiful in the sense that it's open-ended where some artists are very dogmatic. Like this is what my film means. And this is what you need to take out of it. And then others are a little more open of like, they have their vision, but whatever the viewer takes out of it, they're, they love that because it, it's yours then, you know? 
I, I think that Hitchcock himself would probably argue and say, it's just a story, you know, yeah. kind of thing. But I know that it's not just a story because there are too many very well-planned connection between everything in his films. Yeah. An, an example, again, using Vertigo, the color green and red, for example, those two colors are very much connected to every aspect of the story. Not that the colors mean anything, except that visually it connects every single character's and every single situation. I'll give you an example. The first time that Jimmy Stewart sees Kim Novak mm-hmm. as Madeline, she's wearing green. The first time that he sees her as Judy, she's wearing green. Yeah. She drives a green car. Um, his building where he lives is painted green. When he recreates from Judy Madeline, There's a neon that's green and she comes out of a green light. Yeah. It's all, and and, and what I mean is like, it's not like, oh, what's the symbolic of green? No, it's like Hitchcock was like a painter connecting all of his characters, all of the places in which they lived via a color palette that connected them, that became part of that world he was depicting. Um. And you have that in the uh, birds as well. Green well, you, is you have that literally through colors in 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 vertigo. Um, but from a thematic standpoint, you can argue you have that in Psycho. Psycho is the story really of a young man who had a domineering mother. Yeah, and we don't find that out until the last five minutes of the film. Yeah. However, throughout the entire movie, the characters keep talking about mothers. The first scene between Janet Lee and John Gavin, John Gavin says to her, well, you know, I'd love to come to your home and she, and, and, or how can we have a relationship? And she said, I want you to come to my home and have mother's picture on the mantle. Yeah. And then he says, well, what do we do after, after lunch? We just turn mother's pictures to the wall. So already you have like the mother. Then she gets to her office, right? And there is Pat Hitchcock. And uh, Janet Lee says to Pat Hitchcock, who plays her fellow secretary, says, anybody called? And she said, Teddy called her husband. Uh, my mother called to find out if Teddy called. So you know that her own mom is a domineering, you, you know. Yeah. Mother. So when you get to the motel, Janet Lee talks to Norman Bates. And what do they talk about? His mother. Yeah. At that point, you don't know that she's actually dead. But it's fascinating that every single step of the way, Hitchcock is giving you clues that this is about, you know, uh, a, a domineering mother who eventually is a killer, who eventually is actually dead, but has taken control of 
her son's personality. It's it's insane. It is so well written and plotted. So that's what I mean by like Hitchcock. Did he know he was plotting in plotting it all this way in in such a, a precise and smart way? Yeah, where every single line of dialogue is is sort of talking to you know to the theme of the film uh, without the audience even knowing what the movie is ultimately about. Uh, I, I I don't know. I just think he was extremely natural and organic in the way that he plotted things. Remember that this is a director who started in the silent era. Yeah. Before sound was a thing, and he was forced to tell stories with images only. And, and you still see, you know, that aspect of his filmmaking, even if in his sound pictures. If you take Rear Window, which is part of this collection, Rear Window starts literally with close up on the thermometer. It's yeah. uh, over 100 degrees. So, you know, it's hot, right? Yeah. And then you go to Jimmy Stewart asleep. He's sweating. Then you pan to his leg in a cast. cast yeah. And you pan to... A broken camera, so you know that he is a photographer. You pan to you see a photo of a of a racing car tumbling towards him, so you know that he broke his leg, broke his camera as he was taking yeah. that picture. And then you pan to a, a, a pile of magazine, and you know that that's his profession. Totally. Well, the economy, the economy of the storytelling there, and the exposition is is masterful anybody else would have like a dialogue with someone on the phone or uh, or uh, uh, you know whatever but hitchcock no he 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 knew how to tell a story in very precise um images and he's an auteur in the sense that you you find those themes you know we were talking about the mother in 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 psycho but the birds is all about the mother. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a love story, and the approval of the mother. It's it's a reoccurring the theme. The approval yeah. of the mother. Yeah, and and that that to me is so touching. That movie, the birds, make me cry. I mean, there is a scene uh, between T.P. Hedren, who, by the way, I think is part of the reason why I love that movie because her performance is unparalleled. She's yeah. totally underestimated as a as an actress. Uh, but that in, scene, in that attic her, scene, she ended up in the hospital for a week, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. In the attic scene, didn't she actually end up in the hospital scene for a week after that because of all the trauma of the birds that she had to endure in that in yeah. that scene? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a really difficult scene to film, and and I think um, that she was pushed to the limit on that. Um, I'm curious to ask you, because you just touched on something that I think we should really hammer in on. You know, you mentioned how he, he started on silent films, and then he transitioned, you know, into to actual films with audio and, and dialogue. And, you know, a lot of filmmakers weren't able to make the transition as well, moreover, really succeed in that. And, and in the acting components of realism and naturalism and how that affected it from, you know, the silent era of the Chaplin gestural, the really loud kind of acting to, you know, the Anthony Perkins, 
you know, the parlor scene, the, the stillness that exists there and the creepiness that's able to come just from the quietness, you know, like, could you talk a bit about how acting the, that landscape evolved post-World War II and these filmmakers were now approaching, you know, talkies? Is that, isn't that what they were called then? Or Yeah. yeah. So, so you, you know, Hitchcock's first sound picture was at the same time his last silent picture. It's called Blackmail. Okay. As he's making Blackmail, sound appears. So his producers basically says, we're kind of screwed. We can't release this movie as a silent movie because now people are talking. Yeah. What are we going to do? Well, we need to reshoot the scenes with our actors talking, right? Yeah. The problem is his lead, Annie Andra, didn't speak English. She was Czech. And she spoke with a really thick, thick Czech accent. Yeah. So he had another, and at the time you couldn't dub people. So as he is recording, uh, so he basically had on stage, off screen, Joanne Berry, who was a famous stage actress, British, do her dialogue. And the actress on screen is just basically not talking, just moving her lips. Mm-hmm. But she was being dubbed live during wow. blackmail. No and way. You would never know. I mean, it's again the magic of what of how brilliant Hitchcock was. He could adapt to any situation yeah. <laughs> that was thrown at him. And and it's it's fascinating to me. But if you look at Jimmy Stewart talking about acting, and I know your your podcast is about acting, it's pretty amazing when you look at an actor like Jimmy Stewart doing his performance in Vertigo, which is that of an obsessive man who is uh, struggling with a guilt complex, is obsessed with uh, a femme fatale in some ways. And, and a woman he wants to recreate, to make that believable is really hard. Yeah. And he had done Rear Window in which he pretty much, I mean, Rear Window is, is even though it is about murder, it's a, a very light and funny. Yeah. And he plays a completely different type of man. And then you see him in Rope, um, in which is, he plays kind of a stodgy, like uh, uh, cynical, older professor, teacher, completely different performance. And then you see him as a father struggling with, with the kidnapping of his son in The Man We Knew Too Much. Yeah. When you see those four Hitchcockian film with Jimmy Stewart, you, you get, you fall in love with acting. because. 100%. Hitchcock gave him uh, gave him the 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 sort of uh, um, you, you know the four different characters and he embraced them in a completely different way. It is masterful. If you want to know about acting, I would say watch those four films. They're all Universal movies, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, they're. Um, they really show you the range that an actor can have. And that's, that's pretty amazing. 
I would say that Cary Grant, who made several films with Hitchcock, always played the kind of same character. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to Catch a Thief and North by Northwest, Suspicion. He was always sort of like the wrong man, but like funny guy and sexy and funny. Uh, um, but Jimmy Stewart, different in every single one of those movies. And I, I cannot tell you how inspiring it needs to be for young generations, who, people who want to be actors to watch those performances um, that Hitchcock got out of him is insane. I think what Anthony Perkins did with that character is what led to, I mean, you know, people talk about Ed Gein and how that, you know, inspired so many of those other movies, but like what happened in that movie, you know, especially with the ending and, and knowing the duality of his uh, bipolarity or his dual personalities, I think that is probably one of the finest performances I've ever seen recorded on cinema in my life and how he's able to kind of like, be this likable guy at first that's very affable and 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 switch that, but in a very ca clever and casual way. You know, I'm curious. I'd love to talk to you about casting with Hitchcock because he was very particular about who he casted. Isn't that? Yes, and I remember yeah. Janet Lee. Uh, you, you know, Hitchcock, there's this, uh, I'll just say that because Hitchcock had such an incredible sense of humor, and, and, and one that could be very macabre. Um, you never quite know if he was joking or if he was serious. Uh, but there were great quotes where he would say, you know, all actors are children or... Um, yeah, sometimes wasn't the easiest guy to work with, right? <laughs> no, I think from what... I, I'll quote you two stories. One I got from Janet Lee where she said, listen, Hitchcock told me, the movie is a pie, and I'm going to give you the slice of pie. Within that slice, I want you to be completely free and to do whatever you want. Yeah. You can explore the characters. We can, we can talk about it, but do not get out of your slice. If you yeah. do, it will be trouble. Yeah. And um, I think she understood that, and that's why you have in Psycho, um, she's in the movie, like, what, 20, 25 minutes, one of the most powerful, in a sense, supporting a role of all time. Um, not to mention the shocking aspect of a movie star being murdered within 20, 25 minutes yeah. of, of a film. Um, so when, when initially, if you don't know anything about the movie, you think that's, that's her entire journey. Yeah. Um, so, uh, then I met John Fontaine, who was in Rebecca and Suspicion years ago in New York. Brought her a single rose, I remember, because I knew roses. That's beautiful. And uh, she said that Hitchcock was very much of a provocateur and that he liked to tell jokes. And if you took them too literally, you could feel offended. But if you didn't, you were part of that circle of, of, of what the Hitchcock humor was all about. Yeah. And so and she, and she said like, you know, she talked of making Rebecca and, and um, uh, she was mainly surrounded by British actors and, and she was American and, and she felt, she felt very isolated. Um, 
during the making of the film, but she said it so helped her performance because that's what her role was all about. It was all about feeling like an outcast. And so I think in many ways he created an atmosphere and ambiance that was that was very conducive to to performing um, in, in and be free to explore your character as long as you were within his frame. Because right. he would be the kind of director that said, okay, you're building a set. I don't need a window on the right. Yeah. Because um, I know my camera is never going to go there. So you can stop building right there. Wow. He was so meticulously prepared that yeah. he was bored when he got to to direct because it was all about the performances. He knew the actors he had chosen, knew what they were doing. And he just had to move his camera from point A to point B and, and get on. I, I think that's, that's a little bit uh, of, um, you know, of his sense of humor again. But I think that there's truth to that in, in that he was so meticulous in the way he cast and in the way that he prepared his movies that the last thing he wanted was a surprise. And I think as he grew older, for example, when he worked with Paul Newman, who was a very different type of actor, mm-hmm. um, uh, obviously a, a master, and, and, but I, I, I know that Hitchcock spoke of not necessarily getting along with him because he was more of a new generation method type of actor. Yeah. You know? and, and that didn't really fit in with the way that Hitchcock made his pictures not to say that paul newman's performance in torn curtain is actually amazing not hitchcock's best film but a really solid picture uh and and incredible performances by julie andrews and and uh paul newman one of the things I have in my notes here that I would love to talk to you about, uh, first question is that in this re-release is the first time Psycho has been shown in its original cut. That's true, correct? Yes. So do, do we know exactly what happened to, to Psycho throughout the years and why the original cut got lost for a little bit? Well, you know, I mean, censorship at the time was extremely uh, tough. Um they reviewed screenplays, they reviewed cuts, um, and there were many things you couldn't show. Um, Psycho is the first movie to show a toilet. And yeah. how to, flushing as well, too, right? A toilet had never flushed on, on screen before. Correct. And yeah. does it justify this? Well, there is a, a piece of evidence in the toilet bowl. $40,000. <laughs> and I'm like, you know... If, if I'm looking for clues, do I look in somebody's toilets? And if I see something, do I reach into the bowl? Mm, especially in a creepy motel, I don't think I'd do that. Yeah. But uh, Vera Miles does, and John Gavin puts it into his wallet. So, <laughs> so um, but the film had a lot of nudity. Uh, 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 the film had a lot of suggested uh, nudity. Pr- I promiscuity, say, I guess, would be the 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 word that probably well, we would use. I, the br- I, I, the brassiere, right? Because like yeah. she's in the white brassiere, and then she's in the black brassiere after she takes the money, and exactly. the white purse, the black purse, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that also when Norman is peeping on her, uh, um, those 
uh, shots were uh, uh, trimmed and changed at the time uh, because they were more suggestive. Wow. Uh, didn't have like full nudity, but were more suggestive. In the shower sequence, however, when her hand reaches out to the curtain, you, you literally see um, uh, two nipples. I mean, you see, uh, uh, but it's so, you're so focused on the hand. Yeah. That, and it's so blurry that you don't really pay attention, especially after the shock of her death. You see, Hitchcock knew where people looked. And and it was Peggy Roberts. He's a magician in that way. He knows exactly where to manipulate where you're, you know, the distractions here while this is going on here. I mean, that's, you know, Hitchcock and and his wife, uh, she was an editor. He knew where to cut and how to cut and where people's eyes were going to go. Remember that these are the days where you you would see a movie only once for many years until home entertainment. What uh, filmmaking was to be experienced only once. It's very rare when, when you go see a movie over and over that uh, unlike songs or a painting or a picture that you may buy or whatever, you experience a film only once. So you never knew those films were going to be timeless, you, you know, timeless and, 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 analyze in the way that they are so 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 yes i think there is a you know dialogue had to be changed i remember joe stefano saying to me that uh joe stefano being the screenwriter who adapted psycho uh with hitchcock uh, telling me that hitchcock wanted to encourage him to to put a lot more uh, um um i would say sexy descriptions for example, you know, opening scene, Janet Lee is completely naked, and the censors would say, "Oh, you can't have that." Oh, yeah. okay, I'll have her wearing a bra. Yeah. Because if he had put Janet Lee is wearing a bra, the censors would have said, "Oh, you can't have her in a bra." Right. So it would go to to the extreme, <laughs> and, and, and um, uh, so again, you know, all those stories have have been told, and and I'm I I I don't have the exact way on how it all ultimately unfolded. But the truth is that there was a lot of restrictions at the time for many years, and not just in America, worldwide. I mean, Psycho was, if you were not 18, you could not see Psycho. It was like the equivalent of an an X rating in America. And to me, that censorship, even 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 with a, a, a parental guidance, yeah. you could not see Psycho, and I had never seen Psycho. And guess what? On my 18th birthday that month, Universal re-released Psycho in France. I thought it was in my honor, but <laughs> <laughs> for your and, birthday, <laughs> and, and I got to go see Psycho for the first time. Just as I turned 18 in April, I got to go to a movie theater for a show at 2 p.m. on the Champs-Élysées at a re-release of Psycho, and I discovered the film for the first time. Was it in English, or was it dubbed at that point? No, it was actually the original English version with French subtitles, and uh, um, 
it was, you know, it was like discovering a film for the first time. And I didn't know much about it. I did know the twist, but it didn't matter. The, the film, um, you know, takes you over. It's, it's one of those things that Hitchcock did because he was so good with music and, and, and the importance of, of, you know, hooking you into a story in a way that someone else could, you know, the, the first scenes and the last scenes of the films are the things you potentially remember the most. Um, and the first scene of Psycho, which is Phoenix, Arizona, and that panoramic, that, that shot of the city. Of Tucson. Or no, it's, a, yeah, she's Phoenix. going to, yeah, yeah. And, and is that, that white shot of Phoenix, the desert, the heat, and then you go through a window like a peeping Tom, and there is Janet Lee and John Gavin. And by the way, what's so brilliant about that is that the movie is really divided into two parts. Uh, it is it is that original, like, sort of heat, uh, a sexual heat between two human beings. Yeah. Phoenix is the desert. And how does she enter the world of Norman Bates? Through rain and water. It's pouring rain. And guess what? She's killed in the shower underwater. Yeah. And how is she buried? In the swamp. Right. In the water, it is so. Again, it's so brilliant. It's it's like it, 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 she's almost entered something outside outside the regular world. It's like this this she's entered hell, but through water, and it's uh, pretty amazing. But and the last shot of of Psycho is Norman looking straight onto camera with a blanket. Oh. And and for a few seconds, uh, Hitchcock has uh, the face of mother. Yeah. Superimposed, as you see the teeth and the eye sockets, and the car being pulled out. Which, by the way, the license plate of 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 that car that Janet Lee uh, trades and and buys uh, is um, NFB, which is Norman Fake. Bates. <laughs> no way. And, and, and then the, the numbers, the numbers that follows add up to number 13, which is really unlucky. So if he had read a license plate, she wouldn't know. Said, I'm not taking this car. And I'm not going any further. Well, I would love to talk to you about the utilization of, of the technique of voyeurism, because that's like something that's consistent in all four of these films. You know, was this something in that timeline that other directors were doing or was Hitchcock really the first person? You know, I'm, I'm thinking in particular Rear Window, the shots with the binoculars and Psycho. You mentioned the Anthony Perkins, you know, and in, uh, I mean, in the in the birds. There's also the shot from the bar and, and and the phone booth as well. Like, I'm curious, you know, what what was it about voyeurism that you think interested Hitchcock? Well, you know, voyeurism is a definition of cinema. You know, yeah. As 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 a as a viewer, as a public, you are a voyeur. You're you're invited into 
uh, witnessing the world of, of other people. So it's uh, taking it to a, a, another level in Hitchcock's movies. As I said, you know, Psycho opens up with the camera going through a window, um, revealing Janet Lee and John Gavin in an intimate moment. So immediately it, it puts you in that position of being a voyeur. The other thing that's pretty interesting in, in Psycho is that several times in the movie, uh, the actors are looking at the audience directly. Yeah. Almost talking to the audience. Yeah. So the first time that happens is when Janet Lee is driving to uh, to meet with John Gavin, having stolen the money, and she is playing out in her head all kinds of scenario of what's happening as people are discovering she stole money, and she is looking directly to the camera. And um, later on, it's interesting when she stops on the side of the road, a cop stops and knock on her window and the cop is looking directly at her, but is yeah. looking at us. Yeah. It's right. Wearing, breaking the fourth wall. He's breaking the fourth wall. And he's wearing yeah. black sunglasses. Yeah. You can see his eyes. And that, by the way, foreshadows the way that mother looks at you at the end of the movie because she has no eye sockets. It's black. Yeah. Oh, wow. And the it's... last shot of the film is Norman Bates literally looking directly at us. Yeah. And so, and you also have the detective Arbogast when he first comes into the city to, to investigate um, uh, the, 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 the money and what's happened to Janet Lee. He opens the door of the store and he is literally looking into the camera. So it makes you participate. It, it says this story, by the way, the audience is for you. You are participating into that sort of voyeuristic, uh, 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 crazy story. Yeah. Now, Rear Window is the ultimate, the ultimate uh, Hitchcockian um, peeping Tom story. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but in in many ways. Um, it's a heroic and, and, and good thing that he was watching. He's able to ultimately uh, have a killer caught. Yeah. But it's fascinating how Hitchcock introduced the notion of, of split screen by having all those different windows where you have different stories playing out. And by the way, since the movie is about Jimmy Stewart convinced that Grace Kelly is not right for him and she's yeah. going to prove him wrong he's playing out all kinds of possible scenarios by just watching his neighbors there's miss lonely hearts who is nearly raped by the way uh who nearly commits suicide yeah. um and because she you, you know and is desperately looking for love there's the husband with a nagging wife and he ends up cutting her up to pieces there is the one that's called Miss Torso, who looks like she's entertaining all kinds of men. And at the end of the movie, the ballerina the boyfriend is completely someone completely different of, of what you thought she would be with. Then there's the couple that sleeps on 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 the, the balcony, basically, and they're obsessed with their dog. And then there's the newlywed couple who throughout the movie is, of course, consuming their marriage. But at the end of the film, 
uh, um, you overhear uh, the wife saying, you should have told me you quit your job. I wouldn't have married you. So yeah. you know, that's a bad start. And then you have the single guy uh, who is struggling to, to sell a song. So it, it's the ultimate invitation to, to look into people's lives. And um, it's almost um, like Hitchcock is giving Genius Stewart all kinds of scenarios, all kinds of options in order for him to decide how he's going to leave, ultimately on how he's going to decide about his relationship with with Grace Kelly. But there's all kinds of great dialogue about about his camera being a portable keyhole. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) and, And the fact that it's a private world out there, what rights do you have? to look into it. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's very provocative and has influenced, for example, Brian De Palma um, in a movie like um, Buddy Double, yeah. which is highly inspired by, um, by Rear Window. In fact, the original script of Buddy Double took place in New York, not in LA. Oh, wow. So it was even much more of a, of an homage to, to, to rear window. Well, I'd love to talk to you, you know, for the actors listening, I think the reason that these four films in particular are so imperative for actors is that today, you know, films tend to be a lot more spectacle driven and the spectacle is easy to distract, you know, away from like bad acting. I'm just going to say it myself. Whereas these, like these were so reliant on acting because it was it was dialogue and it was performance driven and there was limited, you know, there weren't explosions happening and there weren't superheroes being invaded that this this dialogue had to be riveting and so engaging. And I'm curious, you know, with all these amazing bonus features that are on this, was there a lot of rehearsal with Hitchcock? Do you know? Did he rehearse? Well, there was rehearsals, but like I said, he was very much there was not like the, there was no such thing as a table read with Hitchcock. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, from the people I talked to that there were many takes either. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't like a David Fincher where, you know, 33 takes and, and keep going. Or like, or like Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, a, I mean, it was a different time also, you know, the cameras were very cumbersome. You, uh, you, you shot in the studios, I mean, the birds, you know, when she arrives in Bodega Bay, if you're looking up the street, it's Universal Studios. Right, because he wanted to shoot most on on back lot and very little on, on location. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah but like yeah. When, she's, when she's driving up, literally when she is, when you're looking up at her car going up, that's Universal. The reverse shot, that's Bodega Bay location. I mean, um, so so what I mean to say is that the films were very, it, it was very, very complicated, much more yeah. complicated. Um, so I think he had great dialogue with his actors. I think he had extreme faith in, in his actors. I have to say he had extreme faith in his writers because the dialogue in those movies is amazing. It's perfect. And, it's like and I remember I was very close to Joe Stefano who wrote, uh, Psycho. I was very close to Evan Hunter, who wrote The Birds. 
and was fired from Marnie, um, I knew Jay Preston Allen, who ultimately got credit for Marnie. Um, I knew Anthony Schaffer, who wrote Frenzy for Hitchcock. Yeah. I knew Charles Bennett, who wrote The Man Who Knew Too Much uh, um, and Blackmail. And I mean, Blackmail is actually based on his play. And he was in, in, he was in his 90s and lived up on uh, Cold Water Canyon. And I would go see him for Happy Hour and talk about Hitchcock. Yeah. And, and so I think it all began with the script and the dialogue and how tightly wound those stories were and those characters. And again, also very careful casting that Hitchcock had immense power very quickly. He had immense power. And, and Psycho was kind of a step back for him, wasn't it? Because at this point, he had done a lot of high-budget, you know, colored pictures. And this one was relatively cheap because he was going back to the black and white, you know, technique, which was a lot cheaper than color film at that time. So he got quite wealthy on Psycho. Wasn't that his his big cash cow? Yeah, although I would argue it wasn't a step back. It was about a 20 20- uh, leap forward. Uh, um, uh, he wasn't trying to step back, but at the time he was doing his television series, which he knew, you know, he could. Hitchcock Presents, that's what it was called. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and he could uh, use his crew from television and um, do the film. In a way that didn't exist back. on other sets, right? Using yeah, in fact, yeah, there is another uh, there's another Hitchcock presents not directed by him that uses the Psycho House. Wow, <laughs> completely. Yes. And, and the one on the Universal backlot is the, is the same one, right? It's just been moved from the original location, right? Now, correct. I, I, yeah. You would have to triple check that because I think there's. A, I, I've always gotten sort of of. Um, Different opinions on that. Uh, yeah. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but in any case, um, getting back to, to performances, even the tiniest roles in Hitchcock's films have a purpose and have, um, uh, uh, you, you know, something to, to offer to the story of the viewers. Um, there is this scene in the Tithe restaurant and you have this old lady named Mrs. Bundy, who is like a, a bird specialist. And then you have the local drunk who keeps saying, it's the end of the world. You remember all those people. In fact, yeah. Mrs. Bundy is kind of funny. I asked Evan Hunter, where do you get that name? Because there is a street named Bundy Drive in L.A. It's like, that's where I got it. I used to drive by Bundy Drive yeah. all the time. And I'm like, oh, let's call her Mrs. Bundy. Um, so, <laughs> but but it, it's a pleasure to watch those films because all the characters are memorable. All the characters have, as I said, a purpose. And, and for actors, I think that you should be so lucky to have one scene in a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Oh, um, man. When... You know, he even elevated the notion of being an extra to his cameo appearances. Yeah. <laughs> so set the way for people like Stan Lee and, and other people that love that kind of thing to do in the, in their, you know, uh, respective bodies of work. 
but uh, I'd love to talk to you just about his relationship with Bernard Ehrman, because, you know, I know originally he envisioned the psycho uh, shower scene as a completely silent scene. And then when Bernard delivered it to him with the the score, didn't he double his salary? Um, Well, the thing that's interesting to know about, about psycho, it was never to be silent. It was to be just sound effects of the shower and the knife and cleaning. But the music, you see, Hitchcock approached music like a character. Music was not, was not notes to him. It was a voice. Yeah. So to add thrilling, you know, violence to the shower scenes is like adding another scream, enhancing a sequence in a way that, that is uh, uh, really um, uh, unparalleled in cinema. Yeah. Um, and it's a relationship that was that unfortunately ended badly um, at a moment, I think, where Hitchcock was vulnerable and he was making Torn Curtain and he wanted, um, I mean, obviously he was struggling with the film and Herman had composed a score that's very akin to North by Northwest, actually, I I think, Mm -hmm. a little bit. And Hitchcock threw it out and he said, I want something more poppy. This is the 60s. I need need a song. I need... and that was the end of their relationship. Wow. But that score um, has survived and has been released um, uh, since then. And it's a beautiful score. I, I encourage anybody who loves Bernard Herman to really. Yeah, it's, it's my favorite scores of all time. I think it's, I mean, I don't think we have, you know, the, the last film that I think that could de- declare its score that well was kind of maybe in Bruges where the music and the synchronization with the, they just played so well together. You know, I, I feel like that's kind of a sad lost art in, in some modern movies today. And hopefully I hope that oh, makes it totally. I mean, yeah. I, mean I, I think that the rivalry between sound design and music and dialogue is, is a huge thing in movies today, especially loud movies. And um, most often, you know, the explosion wins over, a beautiful music cue. Yeah. But uh, getting back to, to Bernard Herrmann and his unused score for Torn Curtain, when Marty Scorsese did the movie Cape Fear, um, it was a remake of a, of a film directed by J. Lee Thompson, and he had Elmer Bernstein use the music that Herman had composed for the original Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. But... Scorsese's version was much longer than the original movie, so he didn't have enough music. So the whole climax in Scorsese's version of Cape Fear on the boat is actually the score from Torn Curtain by wow. Herman that, I didn't know that Hitchcock had rejected. No way! Both movies available on yeah. Home Entertainment. With Universal Home Entertainment. We love you so much. I'm curious because there's so many amazing bonus features. I don't want to gloss over. What are some things that you think are really, you know, for the for the upcoming filmmakers, writers, directors, you know, sound designers that in, in this that you think are are timeless and people can really dig into from these films. Well, listen, I'm just going to say that at the time that I did my feature-length documentaries on Psycho and The Birds, a lot of those people were around, and a lot of those people who are in those documentaries are no longer around. 
I am so proud of the fact that I was able to immortalize them beyond just the film and have them talk about their contribution to the movies. I want to say that they're feature length documentaries. They're not, you, you, you know, little 10 minute pieces are, they're actually dig very deep into not only the making of those films, but also in the, the appreciation that one might have for those movies and yeah. their placement in, in film history. Uh, it, they were done at a time where uh, um, the home entertainment business was just starting. And I think that um, I am so grateful for universal generosity with me at the time, because I was arguably one of the very few who was able to, to make those types of films. Yeah. Uh, no one else was able to actually do a feature length documentary on Psycho yeah. or on The Birds. No one else had done that. And, and, and um, I imagine they give you a lot of access to a lot of like, original. You oh, know, yeah. Access was, was insane. I remember going to a, a warehouse up in the Valley that was something right out of Kafka where it's all those boxes. It was something like, you know, the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. It was a warehouse like this and, and pulling out all those memos and, and all those, uh, you know, draft of scripts, correspondence. It was, it was heaven. Um, access to photos and sometimes heartbreaking when you realized a lot of things had been destroyed because, yeah. You know, there was never that thought that in years from now we would this be is timeless. talking about this. Yeah, you know, it, it, totally. So, um, but again, I think the studio, um, because it had leaders like Lou Wasserman and Sid Sheinberg for such a long time that they were very, very careful. And there was the the theme park. They were very careful about their legacy and history, unlike. You know, MGM, when that went down, you could go to dumpsters outside the, the lot and you could find all this stuff being thrown out because the studio was closing, you know. So, so yeah. um, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the fact that those um, uh, films you can experience. And then if you are inclined to do so, you can watch the documentaries that I that I did and all kinds of other things like the, the, there are discussions between Hitchcock and Truffaut. You have the trailers that were yeah. by Hitchcock. You have uh, some, just- some of these trailers were like six minutes long, right? Back in the day, like they used to do a lot longer trailers, didn't they? Yeah. Because yeah. you don't want to really show anything. Yeah. So you would just host a tour of the Bates motel. <laughs> and, and then for the birds, he would just give a history of, of, of man's relationship to birds. And then you would cut to something he had shot exclusively for the trailer with T.P. Hedren saying, they're coming, they're coming, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you get the title. Um, or, or it's, it's coming, it's coming, because it was interesting that there was this grammatical error. It's coming, the birds. You would think you would say, they're coming, yeah. the birds. But no, the birds is a movie, so it should be, it's coming. I always love that little nuance. In closing, the thing to say is really that 
young people should watch Hitchcock because they'll feel inspired and they'll feel like they're watching something unique and of their time. It is, I, I, I mean, that word is overused, but it's timeless classic. Yeah. If you want to be an actor, watch Hitchcock, watch Jimmy Stewart, Tippi Hedren, Janet Lee, Yeah, Grace Kelly. Watch those iconic performances where the line between humor and the macabre and, 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 and romance are completely blurred. It is so amazing. In fact, as soon as we finish this, I'm going to go watch The Birds again. So I'll talk to you soon, man. Yeah, well, I want to say, you know, it's available now on 4K Ultra HD Combo Pack with the digital download code featuring hours of bonus features, screen tests, and so much more. Lawrence, you are an icon, and I'm just so amazed every time I talk to you. I just want to be a student of yours, and I have so much gratitude for what you do for cinema and how you're able to carry it and just... I just could listen to you talk for hours and I'm going to have you come back on the show probably every month. And we're just going to talk about a different filmmaker, but I'm curious, you know, for you yourself, Lauren, what's next for you? Well, I'm, I'm developing a series of documentaries right now on the heels of, on the heels of the success of Natalie Wood, what remains behind. Which you're about to win the Emmy for. No, I, I, I didn't, I didn't get nominated, but that's okay. I thought you did. I thought you did. No, no. Oh, I voted. <laughs> yeah, listen. Yeah. It's okay. We had yeah. a, a triumphant screening at Sundance, arguably, and sadly, the last festival uh, uh, before um, our health crisis. Yeah. Um, and the film's rate, the ratings of the film on, on, on HBO was through the roof. So it's incredible. I showed my whole family the film. I'm extremely grateful uh, for. Um, uh, the success and that's brought me uh, a number of projects that I'm de- developing as a, as well as um, a couple of feature films for me as a director as well. So there's a lot to come and, and, and who knows. Um, but uh, as I said, um, it's a crazy business. So, yeah, well, this is where actors learn the classics and Alfred Hitchcock and they learn from people like you, Lauren and, I hope we get, as an actor, I get a chance to be directed by you one day, the master of cinema himself, the next Hitchcock. I'm so grateful for your time. And thank you so much to Universal Home Entertainment for allowing me to interview you and access all this amazing and review these films that are going to be timeless. I'm recommending every actor right now to make sure you purchase this. It's incredible. It's imperative. And it's a learning experience. And that's all we need right now during these trying times to say the least great well thank you so much always a pleasure yeah it's so fun to talk about this stuff and yeah i'll talk to you soon i love you brother let's do it again soon take care if you like the show rate review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts thank you for listening 